welcome to Security by the Book, a monthly podcast series from the Hoover Institution's Working Group on National Security, Technology, and Law. In this episode, Task Force co-chair and Hoover senior fellow Jack Goldsmith interviews Jeff Powell about his new book, Targeting Americans, the Constitutionality of the U.S. Drone War. It was recorded on May 11, 2016. Uh, thank you for coming tonight. Um, as everyone in the audience knows, on September 30th, 2011, um, the United States government uh, purposefully targeted and killed an American citizen in Yemen named Anwar al-Awlaki by a drone uh, with the use of an unmanned aerial vehicle. He was allegedly, uh, I say allegedly because he never received a trial, obviously, but there's pretty conclusive evidence, an operational leader of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Um, this has been a very controversial uh, action by the government. Professor Jeff Powell of the Duke Law School, also a former OLCer, many roles in the federal government, but most prominently, uh, most importantly for this conversation, uh, Jeff worked in the Office of Legal Counsel. He's written a book called Targeting Americans, and it's about, it's really a ground up, from the ground up analysis of the constitutionality of drone warfare. Um, and so we're, the main claim in the book, and, and, and the, re, the arresting claim in the book, is that the Bill of Rights do not apply to legitimate exercises of military power by the government, and therefore that the Bill of Rights, including the Due Process Clause, just didn't even have any application uh, in this targeted killing. Uh, that doesn't mean, it certainly doesn't mean that there were no restrictions. The book is very elaborate in, in detailing what the restrictions are. We'll get into this uh, as we get into the discussion. But Jeff, would you just start off, and there's been so much commentary on this, and yet this book is actually quite different than anything that's been written about it. What motivated you to write the book? And just introduce us to the book, if you would. Sure, Jack. Um, and I'm grateful to be here. Thank you very much to the institution and to everyone who's put it together. Um, the book originated with my sense that the conversation about targeted killing, which is very important, very healthy, exactly what you'd want to um, have happening when the United States government is doing something of this sort, that this conversation, particularly as it related to the legal and constitutional issues, which came to the forefront with the killing of Mr. Al-Awlaki, uh, that there were a couple of flaws in the conversation, fundamental ways in which it wasn't quite uh, joining the issues correctly. One, uh, one of the ways in which that was true, I came to think, was the imprecision with which people were talking. Now, you know, it's a kind of lawyer or even professorial sort of thing to, to worry a lot about precision. Uh, and, and the public debate is not one that you would expect to be conducted in the technical terms of, of, a, of, a, of a lawyers debating some, uh, some issue. Uh, the contribution, however, of lawyers in this kind of constitutional debate is at least in part to bring some precision to what are the actual questions so that we're not flailing about, uh, throwing around words. Take one example that I began noticing a lot, was used a lot, assassination. Well, what does that mean? People didn't seem to have any concrete idea about what they meant when they referred to the assassination of Mr. Alalaki. So as I was thinking about it and, and reading, I became convinced that there was something to be done in terms of, of trying to get to lay out the way that one should think about the issues with, with some lawyerly precision, not to take it over so that it ceases to be a public discussion, but to make it work better. The other thing that I became convinced was going on 
was that people were asking too much from constitutional law. They were wanting the Constitution and what we say about the Constitution to do more work than it possibly can do, and that that was having a distorting effect on the, the conversation. So what it occurred to me eventually to do was to try to take the issue, is the administration's policy, specifically is the killing of this particular American citizen, is it constitutional? And think about that from the ground up, as you rightly said. So I, I, in a sense, I went back to the beginning, almost literally, and said, okay, how would you analyze the question? And so part of the book uh, simply tries to lay out how, how I understand constitutional law has been traditionally done. So you got a couple of, I think, one way to think about it is a couple of major questions in any constitutional issue involving the federal government. Does the Constitution authorize it? Federal government to act lawfully has to have some authority that ultimately rests in the Constitution. And if it is authorized to act, is the federal government doing something that transgresses a limitation, such as the Due Process Clause? So you can think about all the issues under one or the other of these two, um, these two ideas of authorization and prohibition. So as I began trying to think this through from the ground up, uh, I became, uh, it became quite clear to me that part of the problem of imprecision was that people were thinking that the constitutional issue might have something to do with the particular way in which Mr. Alalaki was killed. And in fact, I focused, because I use uh, the killing of Mr. Alalaki to focus the discussion, um, I do focus my own discussion about the use of drones to, uh, to target people. But part of what the book has to say is that that's not where the, the real issues lie. The real issues lie in questions such as the constitutional authorization to the political branches to wage war successfully. And to wage war, John Marshall said the Constitution was made uh, to uh, encounter and take care of the various crises of human events, to wage war successfully, not just in an 18th century context of lines of musketeers shooting each other, but in the 21st century context that's, that's very, very different. Uh, and then with respect to prohibitions, I began, began to think about how, how does the Constitution's various prohibitions on government action, how do they fit in with the authorizations of power, which themselves, by authorizing one thing, the Constitution sometimes doesn't authorize something else, and with other kinds of limitations, such as international law, on what the federal government can lawfully do, speaking broadly. Uh, and so that's the way that the book began. The, uh, the basic thesis of the book is that the announced policy under which Mr. Alalaki was killed is itself constitutional. It's authorized under the AUMF that Congress enacted shortly after 9-11. Uh, and that the killing of Mr. Alalaki and the policy generally uh, do not violate any relevant prohibition, although as you've already noted, I don't think one of the relevant prohibitions is the Fifth Amendment. Right. The Bill of Rights. Okay, that, that's a great introduction. So let's start with the historical point. You open the book by saying basically there's nothing new, this is my words, nothing new about targeted killing. Use the example, a World War II example, and uh, an example from the Washington, George Washington era. So would you just set that up for us, what, that sure. there's nothing new about targeted killing? All right. In a sense, uh, targeted killing simply means not indiscriminate killing. Right. That's an aspect of, uh, a long time ago, people would have said, of civilized warfare. Um, in fact, it's been a feature 
long before there was a republic. But it's a feature of American history from the beginning. You, you mentioned the fact, uh, alluded to the fact, I, I give an example of a very early case of American targeted killing, uh, the, uh, something that happened at the Battle of Sarasota uh, during the Revolutionary War. An American marksman in George Washington, and who could be a more respectable example of, of proper warfare than George Washington, Washington recruited marksmen, there was a specific sharpshooter uh, unit within the Continental Army, and one of the sharpshooters uh, was at the Battle of Saratoga and killed the British brigadier who in fact apparently was playing a central role in conducting the, uh, the British side of the battle. Uh, Targeted killing was a, was a feature of uh, the American Civil War. Targeted killing has been a feature, in fact, of every American war. The most famous example is, of course, the deliberate, planned, targeted killing of Admiral Yamamoto during World War II. We took a specific, high-ranking enemy officer, we made the decision to kill him, and we went about killing him deliberately, purposefully, individually. So. But both of those examples, the enemy was not a U.S. citizen. Those are just examples right. of, of past uncontroversial examples of what we think of today as targeted killing. Uh, the, the claim in the book, basically you argue that the AUMF authorizes this killing. And the hard question, I think, that, and the most provocative claim is that there's no prohibition on that authorization or no limitation on that authorization grounded in the Bill of Rights. And so could you, could you just explain the basic logic and maybe ground it? A lot of it has to do with the Civil War cases, which obviously involve targeting American citizens to some extent. So tell us, tell us the, the nature of the Bill of Rights claim. Why, should, why doesn't the Bill of Rights apply and limit Absolutely. targeted killing? Yeah, no, it's, it, it's, a, it's a vitally important question. And of course, it's one that people, not everyone agrees with my, uh, uh, right. <laughs> my conclusion. Let's start off with a preliminary point. Uh, the due process, no one is reading the due process clause, or at least no one defending the administration's policy, is reading the due process clause literally. It doesn't distinguish citizens and non-citizens, and no one's making it, there's, there's really not much of an argument being made that the due process clause needs to apply to Al-Qaeda operatives uh, who are not U.S. citizens. So we're not talking about literal fidelity to the Constitution versus some other kind of position. Just to clarify that point, basically the, the Due Process Clause doesn't itself distinguish between citizens. It refers to persons, right. the Fifth Amendment. Right. All right. Uh, secondly, I claim and believe that the weight of, of judicial authority rests with the proposition that the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment, and indeed the Bill of Rights more generally, simply doesn't apply to the federal government's exercise of military force under the war powers. Long line of Supreme Court cases. They have their roots in the Marshall Court era. Uh, lots of cases that came out of the uh, Civil War. Controversially, as you and I have talked uh, earlier, uh, I think the World War II case of Ex parte Kieran uh, is another example of this. The basic position being that when the government is acting not as a government governing people, but rather as the defender of the republic, that although there are legal limitations on what it may do, those limitations do not include um, the Bill of Rights protections. And the, the, the example, not from judicial precedent, but from political practice, that I think is the most powerful, is itself, as you suggest, the Civil War. The United States government deprived thousands of U.S. citizens 
of their lives without giving any of them due process. It deprived thousands of other U.S. citizens of their liberty for prolonged periods of time, once again without giving them any due process. And it took lots of private property without providing due process or uh, just compensation in every instance because the federal government's position was that these U.S. citizens are in fact have forced war on the United States and therefore they are the lawful objects of the war powers being used not to govern but rather to defend the republic against attack. So I've, so I've found to my surprise the, the 19th century cases, the martial court cases and the civil war cases were compelling on this point but I was less persuaded by uh, in the 20th century. Um, so the Kieran example, most of you probably heard of, it's, it was the 1942 decision by the Supreme Court that upheld the legality of President Roosevelt's um, military commissions as, as applied to eight, eight, I believe it was, Nazi saboteurs, at least one and perhaps two of which were American citizens. And in the course of that opinion, which you think counts in your favor, I read it, at least it seems to be in tension with your thesis, because the court spent many paragraphs, 10 or 12 paragraphs, maybe eight paragraphs, struggling with whether its holding was consistent with the Fifth and Sixth Amendments and the Bill of Rights. And in your logic, the 19th century cases should have just been a single sentence. We don't have to deal with those. They don't apply in wartime. So why isn't Curran in tension with your thesis? Well, good point. And one of the things, I should have said this, by the way, one of the other ambitions of the book was to try to present an argument that what that took positions and took them clearly, but also tried to acknowledge weaknesses. Yeah. So uh, I welcome this kind of um, this kind of question. I think the ex parte Kieran uh, opinion of the court, which the court issued uh, some considerable time after it actually yeah. uh, issued its ruling. Yeah, it's a famously controversial opinion because, just if I could add, the justices struggled to reach the. To, to find a rationale to uphold the result that they reached and announced before they wrote the opinion. I think that the, I think the ex parte Kieran opinion is in tension with itself. I agree with you that there are things in it that are in tension with my position and that without explaining why or distinguishing the earlier cases uh, are in tension with those. But at the same time, there are plenty of statements yeah. in the opinion that support the position that I take. Um, but, I, but I agree. The, I, I think the actual answer is that the court was so riven by disagreement in itself and so unsure about how to proceed that it wrote an opinion that tries to straddle both sides. Yeah. So, but if I'm, so, so that, that's fair. I think Hamdi is an even, even harder case for you. If I'm sitting in the Office of Legal Counsel in, in 2013 writing this opinion, I'm very glad I wasn't. Um, and I, I read, read this book and I was persuaded it's very powerful evidence from the 19th and early 20th century cases. Um, but then there's the Hamdi decision, which in the context of this conflict, the, the, uh, the post-9-11 war, interpreting the AUMF, holds that the due process, this is my understanding of the holding, you can correct it, holds that the due process clause applies to the detention of a U.S. citizen uh, picked up on the battlefield in a traditional armed conflict, detained in the United States under, at least in part, the AUMF, and the court held that he had a right under the due process clause to challenge the factual basis that he was in fact an enemy combatant, he was in fact an enemy soldier, that he got Matthews versus Eldridge type due process rights, which meant notice and an opportunity to be heard. If I'm an OLC lawyer in 2013, that's a very hard precedent to get around, isn't it? I don't think so. Uh, okay, we've got a U.S. citizen 
held in U.S. jurisdiction in the United States who says, I am not, in fact, a lawful object of the military force under the war powers. This is a mistake. So it's a it becomes the limit question, okay, where is this, a, is this within the powers of war or is this within the powers of governance? Uh, Justice O'Connor concludes that in that circumstance, due process is owed this person. She says, with respect, for example, to um, uh, when she discusses the Civil War era case, the Milligan case, mm -hmm. she says that the, you know, we might have a different situation uh, where people would not be entitled to the protections of the Constitution, individual protections, uh, if Mr. Milligan had been captured on the battlefield, if he had been, in fact, uh, clearly an object of uh, the proper use of the war powers. She uh, also discusses at a later point in the opinion the fact that the holding in, uh, in her opinion is one that is, is based on the situation before her and not based on what she calls um, the power of the U.S. Constitution divisions, whatever that is, for the executive in its dealings with other nations or with any organizations in times of conflict. So I, think her, I actually think her opinion, if read carefully, is... Uh, falls on my side of the, um, the interpretation issue rather than the other. But, but let's go the other way. Let's, uh, let's assume that I'm wrong, which I may be. Assume I'm wrong and ask, what are the consequences of, of that decision? If you think that the due process clause applies, I think a couple of things follow. One is the due process clause is turned, is turned into something that we don't want to turn it into, and done so in pursuit of a chimerical, empty limitation. Okay, what, do, what is it it turns into? It turns into uh, a constraint that doesn't constrain. I'm a lawyer. The policymakers, the decision makers, the people who have information come to me, and they say, we have this information about Mr. Al-Awlaki. Uh, here's why we think he's, uh, to the extent we can tell you, here's why we think he's uh, the equivalent of a lieutenant general and the enemy forces. Uh, here's why we think uh, he needs to be uh, uh, eliminated if possible. Um, what am I as a lawyer to do? Now, uh, we can debate that, but I think it's going to be very hard for me as a lawyer to do anything other than say, okay, based on what you're telling me, Yes, go ahead, assuming the due process of clause applies. The administration's position, is, and it's stated in a nuanced fashion by the Justice Department documents and more, in a more uh, unrestrained way by the President himself, is that due process applies and that the administration's policy provides due process. Well, let's think about that. The administration's policy does not purport, of course, to provide Mr. Alalaki with notice. It doesn't purport to provide him with an opportunity to be heard, to argue, for example, that I'm not actually a lieutenant general, I'm the minister of education, uh, by analogy. And it doesn't provide any opportunity for the, dis the decision about any, con any factual dispute to be uh, decided by a neutral decision maker. Instead, what it does is it has the executive branch, which thinks it should and is appropriate to target Mr. Alalaki, talking to itself. That's not Matthews against Eldridge, although it's set up that way. 
It's not, in fact, even the minimal idea of due process. Now, you say, might say, well, that's, it's an exception. We can't do notice hearing, opportunity to be heard, all that kind of thing in this circumstance. So we'll, we'll call this other kind of approach, due process. The process that's due in this special context. That's correct. I, I think that's a very serious mistake. The, where the administration's policy actually has some bite is where it requires obedience to the law of war. We'll let that be, and I agree with that, it's a limitation. So you're not getting anything additional when you say that. Just to what be you, clear for people to understand, the laws of war that prohibit indiscriminate killing, that, that demand proportionate killing and the like. So the, you think that the major restraints come from the laws of war rather than the Constitution. That's right. And okay. I think that's, that's, that's the constraint that seems to actually have some teeth in it right. in the administration's own policy. What you're getting instead is, and the novel uh, aspect to it and the part I object to, is a claim that due process can be supplied without notice, without an opportunity to be heard, without the neutral decision maker, and that then becomes, no matter how much you say that it has to be limited, it is limited, it's only for this situation, you can't really do that in our kind of system. Let me give you an example. If you read this, the uh, per curiam opinion of the Supreme Court in Bush against Gore, it has stamped all over it quite clearly, this is good for one ride only. Do not quote this, do not cite this. And the Supreme Court justices of this day have never done so. They've followed their own um, we just made this one decision, folks. The lower courts have, of course, cited the opinion hundreds of times. That's not surprising. Once you say of, of an action by the executive that it's not just an incident or something that was done under the heat of necessity in a war or something like that, but rather that it satisfies the Constitution, you have what Justice Jackson memorably said uh, in the Korematsu Japanese internment camp uh, decision Japanese-American internment camp decision, you have set up a loaded weapon that lies around for people to use in other contexts. Yeah. So let, I want to summarize this point and push you on it because I think it's one of the most important in the book. Um, so just to, re to, because this is, so you make this very powerful, very intricate, historical, doctrinal argument that the Bill of Rights doesn't apply to authorized military action. But then there's, a, there's another powerful, I'll call it a functional argument, you don't call it that, and this is the one you just made, and that is most of us, most of the discourse around targeted killing is the president in secret is making a decision without any independent check to kill an American citizen. The due process clause says no life, no, no deprivation of life without due process. That seems like it applies here, and we can't leave the power of execution. Some people call it assassination, even though technically it, it isn't. We can't leave that power in the hands of a single person. There has to be some kind of check. To which you respond, and that's the, the kind of intuitive argument that the due process clause needs to have some application and hopefully some bite. So I'm summarizing, your, your response is that's chimerical. That's, that's a false, um, uh, it, it's, um, it's- It doesn't a, restrain and it leaves open by, by arguments by analogy, if, if, this was, if it was due process in this particular context to not give someone notice, not give them a hearing, not have a neutral decision maker, if that was due process in this context because of the particular situation, because of the threat to national security, you can be assured that at some point people are going to say, well, this is like that. 
And even if this seems comfortable at the moment, it's not going to be comfortable somewhere down the line. So it seems like a protection for Alalaki is actually a watering down of the I right, so. and we don't know where it might apply next. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so that's a very good point, and I think there's something definitely something to that. Again, I want to come back. I want to. We didn't talk about this before, but imagine yourself in the Office of Legal Counsel writing that opinion. That's a tough opinion to put your name to, to say that the president has the authorization from Congress to kill an American citizen and does not have to give him due process or any other protection of the Bill of Rights. I mean, it is, that's a tough opinion to sign, but, sign on to. But Jack, you left out part of the opinion. Okay, go ahead. Because the part of the opinion that needs to be in there is in the particular circumstance where a U.S. citizen is the lawful object of military force exercised under the war powers. It's very clear the, the long line of Supreme Court decisions that I'm relying on in part for the doctrinal argument make it very clear that the government doesn't have the ability to choose to use the war powers as opposed to using the ordinary powers of governance, all of which are constrained by the Bill of Rights. So that, for example, one of the things that after Mr. Alalaki's killing, a lot of people seem to have worried about was, well, now the government will just be, the president will be ordering the killing of the drug kingpin on 14th Street. No, this is not something the government doesn't have the option to use war as opposed to governance in dealing with, with the nation. What do you say to the concern that what if there's a mistake? What if the executive branch, because it didn't give him adequate process, as some people think are required by the due process clause, that they're just in secret in this star chamber situation, making a decision to kill someone. And we've seen there are always factual mistakes in war. There are intelligence errors. The administration has, and I'm comforted by this, I have, have insisted, although we can't see the process, that it's extremely robust inside. So what do you say to that concern? Okay. Adding, dubbing this due process doesn't address the concern at all. It doesn't provide us with any more constraint on what the government is doing than it's already being provided by what we are trusting is the conscientious following of, of, the, of the laws of war by the military and other lawyers uh, doing that kind of thinking. We're not gaining anything. So we've got no gain for the ultimate crucial value, constitutional value the due process clause uh, means to protect. On the other hand, we have this, as you nicely said, the, this risk of watering down what is, in fact, a crucial constraint on government. So is it fair to say that you think, you almost use this language in the book, that the due process analysis in the OLC Justice Department opinion is window dressing and maybe damaging window dressing? No, window dressing in the sense that that's what the people who wrote it thought. No, I'm, not, I'm not talking about intentions. I'm talking about, because I, I don't yes. attribute bad and, faith and, to and, anyone. And in, and in fact, Jack, you're absolutely right, of course. One of the things I do say in the book is, our sense that, the intuitive sense that most of us have, well, surely the Due Process Clause has something to say to it. That comes out of an absolutely correct belief that the U.S. government is not authorized by the Constitution to act in barbaric ways. But it's that, alter, that sense is not being served by this kind of made-up constraint. And you said at the beginning, and you say it in the book, that we're asking too much of the Constitution when we constitutionalize this issue. Can you say more about that? Yeah. Because I, I think that's one of the real drivers of the book and one of the important it themes. It is. Uh, we, want the we, we want to have the sense that 
the government is acting, we want to have more than just a sense, because we want it to be the case that the government is acting in orderly ways. We dub it due process, and it makes us more comfortable. I think that's one of the things that, in fact, probably not only drove the lawyers in the Justice Department, but may well drive other people as well in the government. I think it drove the reaction. Imagine the reaction to the opinion that says no Bill of Rights protections. I mean, it, there would have been, people would have been more, it was comforting. Even if it's completely, if, even if it's just window dressing, it's comforting compared to, for the general populace, I think, for the pundits and for the New York Times editorial board and for the critics, it's comforting compared to a situation where the government says no Bill of Rights constraints on what we do. It is. It makes you feel like, well, this is the kind of thing that fits in with, with people, you know, wearing suits and comfortably sitting around talking about things. But that's not war. And one of the things that I think that we don't serve constitutional values well by allowing constitutional language to function to hide from us what it is we're doing. If it's, I, I say right at the end of the book uh, that one of the reasons the Constitution uh, shouldn't be pressed to do more than it can do is, is precisely because there are all kinds of questions, some of which are even more important than constitutional questions, evolved here. If it's wrong to kill Mr. Alalaki, it's wrong to kill him. If it's wrong to be using targeted killing in the ways that some people claim we're using it uh, with enormous impact on general populations in certain areas, it's wrong to do it regardless of whether they're U.S. citizens, citizens or not. And the constitutional language, because of its familiarity, I think sometimes can lead us to not pay attention to what it is we're doing and to the wisdom and morality of what we're doing. And to be fair, you're quite clear in the book that there may be all sorts of political, moral, prudential, and other reasons to have all of these due process-like restrictions without tying them to, oh, absolutely. to the Bill of Rights. Oh, absolutely. So what, again, this is going beyond the book a little bit, where does this, how long, have, is, is asking too much of the Constitution a recent, is this a, it seems like that we've, we've been asking a lot of the Constitution since 9-11. Um, can you give, again, I don't know if, you're, if you can answer this, but what is the historical pedigree of this? Is, have we always asked too much of the Constitution? Is this something new? Is this, is this a, an aspect of modern times? No, 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 no. It, this is the 1790s. Okay. Uh, it, it's an inveterate American tendency, sometimes a mistake, to expect the Constitution to resolve issues, some of which it cannot resolve. It has a limited role and that's the only role it has. Uh, and one of the jobs of people like you and me uh, in the public debate is not, as I said earlier, to take it over, but rather to say, okay, here's what we can do. Here's what we can provide in terms of clarification, in terms of a sense of who makes decisions. And then much of the rest of the debate has to be done elsewhere, but that's been a problem from the beginning. Right. You don't think it's become a greater problem? I mean, the 1790s were full of, you know better than I, lots of constitutional argumentation around policy issues. I think of the neutrality debates, for example. Um, but you don't think it's a problem that's grown worse over time? I think it gets worse and better. I think it's, a, it's an okay. undulating matter. I think it's at a bad point right now. When you have, you know, the 1790s was called by, in a famous essay, an age of paranoia. When you have uh, extreme political discord, it's a very natural thing to go to the Constitution, hoping, because it's something we share, hoping to avoid some of the discord, reduce some of it. Um, and sometimes that's right, and sometimes that's wrong, and how do you tell the difference? Part of that is the role of technical 
let's think about the presidents and the, and the history and the doctrine and all that kind of technical thing stuff will help us figure out what we can ask and what we can't. But no, it's not new. It's yep. old. Right. Um, so at the, in the last chapter of the book, you talk about the sort of three issues going forward. One of them is after the AUMF. So tell us about after the AUMF. We're talking about the 2001 authorization to use military force, uh, the AUMF, that, that uh, the administration claims, and you agree, authorized the killing of Al-Awlaki. And so give us some background on that and tell us how we should think about the end of the AUMF because it, the end doesn't seem near. And if you listen to the Obama administration, especially people in the Pentagon, they say now the war against the Islamic State is a generational war. Okay, yeah. The, the question here is, involves a statute, the AUMF is a, is, is, is a law, that has no sunset provision and doesn't have any very clearly stated uh, terminating event. It, it basically authorizes the president to use all necessary and appropriate military force against the perpetrators of 9-11, uh, described in very general terms, in part because we needed to do so under the facts we had at the time Congress passed it. Uh, and for the particular purpose, not of fighting international terrorism generally, but rather of responding to and preventing 9-11 and future 9-11s. Well, one way to read that, it's not a crazy reading, is that statutes like Supreme Court decisions don't have cell dates and it just goes on forever until Congress repeals it. I don't think that's the best reading. Uh, I think it's the best reading because it leaves us in a situation that is fundamentally different from the historical practice. In the past, to take just the easy, rare, classic example, Congress declares war. Ultimately, the war comes to an end. It comes to an end in a formal and clear fashion. That's almost certainly impossible to expect in this kind of conflict. Right. Does that mean that when Congress doesn't attach a specific termination date, which has all the disadvantages that people worry about the 60-day clock, right. for example, right. under the War Powers Resolution of telling the enemy when we're going to stop. Congress doesn't attach a termination date, and Congress finds it difficult or impossible to give a clear, unequivocal statement of, okay, when this will end, regardless of what the date is. One answer would be, once again, to say it doesn't have an end. But then that puts us in a context of perpetual congressionally authorized war, which I think also is not the best way to read what Congress has done, because Congress didn't say fight international terrorism, period. It said, I can find the language, it said uh, you are authorized to use necessary and appropriate force in order to re re reply to 9-11 and prevent future 9-11s right. by the perpetrators of 9-11. At some point, the perpetrators are gone. At some point. But what does that point look like? Because it's pretty clear that the Obama administration, late, as late as late 2013, early 2014, there are signals coming from the president, from Jay Johnson in, in his speech, Harold Coe in his speech, that al-Qaeda as a threat, the original organization had been so diminished that it was on the horizon that they could basically declare the cessation of hostilities People were wondering what the implications of that were, and, and that, that basically that authorization would uh, elapse. People were wondering what the implications were for the ability to hold people at Guantanamo Bay, for example. Yep. Then suddenly, but we've had a reversal since then. Not only is 
does al-Qaeda seem stronger now than two or three years ago, but the Islamic State, which is not associated with al-Qaeda, although it kind of grew from the ashes of al-Qaeda in Iraq, uh, is this enormous threat. And the president has, through interpretation, extended the AUMF to the Islamic State. So it doesn't seem, and, it, and the conflict against the Islamic State is a conflict that's not nearly over. So are we, it might not be perpetual, it might not be forever, but it may be decades, is question mark. What do you think? Well, I think it's, pro well, two things. The first is, this illustrates what constitutional law or public law more generally can and can't do. We can and should hold this or any other administration's feet to the fire when they reverse positions, or take positions that seem very difficult to fit with the law that they claim to be interpreting. So that when you have a law that was uh, that is written in terms of a particular event, and the perpetrators of, of that event, an organization that has maybe some kind of historical connection in a very attenuated way doesn't fit very easily. Right. So the so by being as precise as we can about what, in this case, the AUMF says, we help ourselves understand the context in which we should evaluate the administration's claims. As a matter of fact, I've, I'm not an expert on strategic or uh, right. nearest in affairs. I've got my own sense, but that's part of the public debate. Right. What you and I as lawyers provide is the ability to say, look, this is not the blank check of go fight international terrorism as long as it right. exists. And they don't, to be fair, they don't, they don't, they don't claim that. that. They don't claim they their claims, and that was what that was the authority the Bush administration sought in September of 2001. Congress rejected that authorization. They gave them something narrower, and with I think even they would admit was a difficult interpretive argument. They've they've crammed the Islamic State into it. Um, I mean, to be fair to the administration, Congress is it, it has I think in a half-hearted way asked for an authorization from Congress against the Islamic State specifically. Congress isn't likely to act on that for a whole bunch of reasons, one of which is the president already claims the authority under the 2001 AUMF. So how much of the blame does Congress get for this, and what does the president supposed to do in a situation of, I hate this word, but gridlock's not the right word, but non-cooperation? Well, first point is that this illustrates the limited ability the Constitution has to help us. What, we're, what you're describing is at least as much as a constitutional issue, an issue of, of uh, the way our political system is currently functioning. Uh, most Americans, I suspect, don't think the system is supposed to be a czar. Most Americans don't think that the system is supposed to be one that is unable to respond to serious national security threats. And since the executive branch is the one 24-7 branch and furthermore is the one that actually takes actions right. for national security, obviously the president has to have some significant discretion. These are constitutional values. Constitutional law itself can't resolve this kind of political disagreement. What constitutional law can do is, one can hope, is identify, for example, the fact that the president sometimes needs congressional authorization isn't free or enti constitutionally entitled to simply do whatever in the president's sincere, good faith judgment needs to be done. Right. Okay, last question, and the last question I'm going to take from the title of the last section of the last chapter, which asks a question, 
Are there constitutional limits to the employment of targeted killing as a tool of war? The simplest answer you say is no, there are no such limits. So explain what you say in that last section and tell us why we shouldn't be worried to death about that. All right. Um, Charles Evans Hughes said, when he wasn't Chief Justice of the United States, that the power to wage war is the power to wage war successfully. That is, I think, a fundamental premise of the constitutional system. And if targeted killing is one of the uh, effective means of waging war successfully in the 21st century context, it has the same constitutional status as the, that rifleman up the tree at the Battle of Saratoga. It's another means of waging war successfully uh, in the defense of the Republic, or Saratoga was establishing the Republic. But that doesn't leave Number one, that doesn't leave the federal government unconstrained. There are various kinds of constraints that I discuss in the book. Um, one of them, and that's, uh, that's part of the section you refer to, is I don't come to a definitive answer. Well, I think it's clear what my own answer is. Uh, the power to wage war is the power to wage war successfully, but not necessarily by all means that someone might think necessary for success. We don't need to go into the unpleasant, horrible details of the kinds of things that have been done over the course of history in waging war. And some of them, I'll just mention one, indiscriminate murder of civilians. For all I know, sometimes that's effective as a means of waging war. Is it imaginable that the founding document, which people like George Washington created, authorizes the national government to engage in that kind of behavior, even in the defense of the republic? I'll leave that as a question mark. My own answer is no, it's not imaginable. So the, the incredibly broad, I'm happy to use the word plenary, which never means quite what it literally says in American constitutional law, law, the plenary power to wage war, I think, has substantive limits beyond which the government may not go. That's great. Thank you so much, Brad. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.